over 5,000 acres of skiing, we've got a tremendous amount of terrain available. So we've always had this philosophy. We don't want guests waiting in line. You know, waiting in a lift line is a big downer. And we've never had many lift lines in Big Sky. A five or a 10 minute lift line in Big Sky seems like forever. And so this capacity that we're building out of our base area, it's designed to uh, anticipate our growth and to stay ahead of the curve. Because once we get our guests up on the mountain, there's plenty of room for everybody up there. Welcome to the storm. host, Stuart Winchester, got a headliner today, one of the top ski areas in America, Big Sky. We'll get to that, but first, remember to please visit stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. There is an article on that site that accompanies this podcast and adds an enormous amount of context, historic trail maps, a mountain overview, pictures, and a whole lot more. The pod is a lot of fun, but the newsletter is the heart of the storm, and I am breaking down the world of lift-serve skiing all year long in the Storm Skiing newsletter. I am also posting daily on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal, and I break news there a lot. Ski season may be winding down, but there is so much that happens in the off-season, so you are going to want to get in on that. Also, you know I'm going to talk about my partners. First up spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, you run the risk of getting hurt. And what's worse than wiping out? Massive ER bills, not to mention less time on the slopes. That's why spot partners with some of the biggest names in the ski industry, like Icon Pass, Telluride, Taos, and more to offer custom injury coverage with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily plugs into your checkout flow and does all the heavy lifting to ensure your skiers are covered. If your guests get hurt, a Spot policy can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. When your skiers are safe from massive medical costs, they spend more time on the mountain without the fear of an injury holding them back. And that's peace of mind they will not find anywhere else. So, visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and show your community that you have their back when things go sideways. To all skiers, make sure your mountain has Spot so you're not blindsided by medical bills if you wipe out. Because that's painful enough. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette 197 is heading to the printer in the coming weeks. The spring 2022 issue is jam-packed with editorial you cannot find anywhere else. Here's what I mean. The new issue features a stunning photo gallery of outdoor culture in Kiev, Ukraine, before the Russian invasion. There's a story about mountain town soccer prospects and a photo gallery by the one and only Jimmy Chin. Yes, that's right, the Oscar winner makes his Mountain Gazette debut in issue 197, plus long-form stories about skiing, biking, whitewater rafting, climbing, and much more. The only way to reserve a copy is to subscribe. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, Go higher. 
Episode 81, Taylor Middleton, President and Chief Operating Officer of Big Sky Resort, Montana. Big Sky is one of our newer mega resorts, opening as a four-lift bump in remote Montana in 1973. Since 1976, it's been owned by Michigan-based Boyne Resorts, which has slowly transformed it into one of the continent's mega resorts. That's been true for a while, but over the past decade, Boyne has gotten aggressive. First, they purchased and added the 2,000-acre Moonlight Basin Resort in 2013. In the past four years, they've added four high-speed lifts, including a quad, two six-packs, and, of course, North America's first eight-pack, the Ram Charger 8. Then, in February, they hit us with a monster gondola and tram complex that is going to completely transform the base to summit experience at Big Sky. If you want to see where Boyne intends to take its 10 resort portfolio over the coming decades, look at Big Sky. They're going big, they're going hard, and they're sending a very clear message that anywhere you find a Boyne resort, they're going to do whatever they can to make that the best ski experience you can find in that region. Whenever anyone talks about why the multi-resort conglomerate can't last, they pull out American Skiing Company or IntraWest, but Boyne has been at this game for a long, long time and has watched both of those companies come and go. We're talking 70 plus years. And to be honest with you, I don't think Boyne has ever looked stronger than it does today. One of the reasons, good people. I don't care if that sounds cliche, I've dealt with enough people at Boyne at this point to know that's their brand. That's the kind of people they seek out. My guest today is one of them. For 41 years, he has helped guide Big Sky's evolution from backwater bump to a top five in North America. He's got a terrific story, and he breaks it all down for us today. Let's go. My guest today is the president and chief operating officer of Big Sky Resort in Montana. With 5,850 acres and 39 lifts on a 4,350-foot vertical drop, Big Sky is the third largest ski area in the United States. Big Sky has been owned by Boyne Resorts since 1976. He has worked at Big Sky for 42 years and spent two decades as the ski area's general manager. Taylor Middleton is my guest. Taylor, so good to have you here. Welcome to the storm. Thank you so much for joining us today. So good to be here, Stuart. Thanks for uh, for this time with you. Uh, you're welcome. So how has your season been so far? I know you're not quite done yet. You have a couple more weeks left, I believe. But how has the 2021 to 22 ski season gone at Big Sky? Well, it's it's a mixed bag. Uh, it's uh, a low snow year. We, we've come off some big snow years, uh, but but this is a lower than average snow year. Uh, but the mountain has skied better than the snow and our visitation has been really strong. So I would put it as uh, uh, kind of good, kind of bad. Well, that's that's better than, than really bad. And you've had 42 seasons there, as I said. So you've had plenty of time. So l- let's go back here to the beginning, Taylor, because it's it's phenomenal when you think how long you've been at Big Sky Tell us about when did you come to Big Sky 
and why and what did you find when you got there both on the mountain and in the town yeah you know so i i spent two and a half years after college traveling and exploring i, I backpacked europe and i went to alaska and i shucked oysters in a bar in florida and i uh, came to Montana, worked in Glacier National Park, and always in hospitality jobs or service jobs. Uh, but uh, I, I had some friends that were working in Big Sky, and that's what brought me here in 1980, January of 1981, and fell in love with the place. It was rural and beautiful and so different from anything I'd ever experienced before. And that... Uh, that was really appealing to me, and uh, and and here I am, forty-two years later. Where did you grow up, Taylor? <laughs> Alabama. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Not much snow there. Did you ever ski Cloudmont? The <laughs> ski area down there. Cloudmont. I think Cloudmont is the most southerly ski hill in uh, in the continental U.S. and I'm embarrassed to say I have not skied Cloudmont. Have you? Uh, no, I haven't. I, I keep watching for a window. It hasn't been open in several seasons now because it didn't, it opted out of last season because of COVID. And then this season I was watching their Facebook page. They, they had the temperatures, but they couldn't find staffing. So they just haven't been able to make it work. But it is my goal at some point, Taylor, to get down there and ski Cloud Mountain. Mine too. Maybe we'll go together. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, so, so had you ever heard of Big Sky, or did you just have a friend there and decided to go check it out? What were your expectations when you when you came into town? No, I I didn't uh, I didn't uh, know what to expect. I it was friends from Glacier National Park that were working seasonally, just like I was working seasonally and traveling. And they said this was a fun place. And and uh, that's how I came here. And uh, my first job here was as a uh, hotel clerk. And, and because I'm a farm boy, uh, kind of, I could drive heavy equipment. So my second job here was driving a, a bulldozer and pulling uh, uh, pipe around building the very first snowmaking system at Big Sky. And, and uh, I came and went seasonally a couple of years uh, before, before coming here full time in 1983. And uh, I was a, sale, a, a salesperson traveling the country. What a great job for a young 20 something. Traveling the country, uh, flying all the time, uh, meeting other young people and drumming up business uh, all around the nation to come to Big Sky. Did that for you? Had you ever skied before? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, I, 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 made a, I made a pilgrimage to Gatlinburg, uh, of course, uh, over Gatlinburg, but I never, I never skied the Rocky Mountain West. So. so were you anxious to do it or did you have to get talked into it? How did that go? Oh, no, I was anxious. I, I couldn't wait. And uh, I learned to ski in blue jeans. And uh, yeah, yeah, just just like everybody else is the first time for everything. And how, how long did it really take you to get it, Taylor, where you were able to, and I know Big Sky back then didn't have 
the nasty terrain it does now, which I mean, it was there, but you had to hike to it. But how long did it take you to feel comfortable and feel like, okay, I'm this, I'm living this ski bum life out West. I got it. I can ski anything. Well, you know, so I am an adult learner versus a child learner, right? And I believe skiing is like language. Uh, you're always going to be better if you start young. And you're always going to be more elegant if you start young. But I, th- I was able to get around, uh, you know, after a season. Uh, and, you know, I've dedicated my life since to, to it. So I can, I can get around the mountain uh, now. But uh, it probably takes, probably takes three or four years to, to really nail it. And then I took a few years off from skiing while I, I learned to snowboard, of course. I, I was exclusive into snowboarding for a couple of seasons. Uh, never got as good as I would like to be at that. Same thing for telemarking. I, I spent a couple of seasons telemarking poorly. That was the hardest one of, of, of the and, and then came back to alpine skiing, which is where I solidly am uh, when I'm in the vertical. But I also love skate skiing, Nordic skiing, too. It's, it's a second snow passion for me. So take us back here, Taylor. You show up at Big Sky in 1981. And the Big Sky of 1981 was not the Big Sky that we're all thinking of today. It had Lone Peak, of course, and it was the same sort of massive range, but it was much less developed. Tell us what you found when you pulled up. Oh, gosh. Uh, It was a tiny little town. Uh, You felt like everybody knew everybody. And and there were only maybe five ski lifts. And they were, of course, all fixed grip slow lifts, except for a a very cool gondola that we had at the beginning. And... um, Gosh, there were almost no visitors in those early years, and it was colder then. Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, it, it was. I just remember it being really cold, uh, much colder then than it than it is now. And so, um, yeah, you would go to a, a bar or a restaurant, and you would see all of your friends all of the time, and and. Uh, it was busier on the weekends and the midweek days were very slow. And then when the resort closed in April, the town felt like it was deserted. What were the towns like back then? Just take us from Bozeman all the way down to Big Sky, which is all much more developed now. But what was that whole corridor like 42 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So the population of, of Bozeman and Big Sky have, have grown exponentially. I'll start with Bozeman. I, I think Bozeman has three, two and a half, three X the population now as it did in 1981. And now Bozeman, you know, it's a very sophisticated, cool, foodie uh, town, uh, very Cosmo and in, in its in its way now. Back then, it was a cow town, right? It was ag and ranching and main street was filled with with those kind of stores it it has really evolved the university has evolved and come it's the state ag university but it's uh, it's it's grown exponentially too and then uh, as you come into to big sky uh, the population of big sky uh, in the early 80s was uh, certainly less than than a thousand 
uh, probably probably more than 500, less than 1,000. As compared to today, the last census was uh, 3,600. I'm acting like that's a big town. It seems big when it was uh, less than 1,000 not that many decades ago. But <laughs> we realize that Big Sky is still a small town today, too. <laughs> and did you move right into Big Sky when you moved there for the winter? I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I am a, I'm an absolute believer that you, you live in the town that you work, and that was a great decision. I've always lived here and always will. So take us through those early years, and obviously you're you've been running the resort for several years now. But uh, that you didn't get there overnight; that required a lot of work and, and a lot of steps. So take us through your, from your first job to where you sit today. You know, it was always in ho- hotels and hospitality. I studied business administration, and so um, I um, I worked in hotels and did night audit stints in hotels on Nantucket Island at the White Elephant, for instance. A guy taught me to night audit there. And then uh, when, I, when I came to Big Sky, I quickly moved into sales and spent oh, three or four years uh, selling the resort and then running the sales organization and then ultimately running the entire marketing uh, business for the resort and another resort in our family, Brighton. Uh, And by the way, as an aside, marketing today is nothing like marketing then. Marketing then was so simple and it was blocking and tackling. And I look at what marketing professionals do now, not only at Big Sky, but the whole industry. They're so sophisticated and they're so technology driven and they're so smart. Uh, I I admire that progression. so, so then after, uh, after my, my um, oh, about uh, a dozen years in sales and marketing and seasonal work here at the resort, uh, John Kircher, our, uh, our general manager and member of the, the, the family that owned Boyne, was here. And when he left to uh, acquire another resort, Crystal in Washington, that's when I took over the reins uh, of being the, the day-to-day operator of Big Sky. And you have a new GM now. When did you decide to transition out of that role and into the role you're in now? You know, Troy Nedved uh, is a great GM. He's been with us for 20-plus oh, years, and he's got a tremendous group of, of capable uh, senior team around him. I, I so admire him he and, and that team. Uh, I transitioned out about two and a half years ago just because, well, it was time. You know, we need fresh blood and we need new ideas and we need to make room for these younger people who are smarter and work harder. Um, and, uh, and then also the scale of the resort. Uh, I, I think when I took over GMing, I, we had about 500 employees maybe. And uh, today we, uh, we would have 2000 if we could hire that many. Wow. How many do you have out of the 2000 that's ideal? Oh, about 1700. Okay. Yeah. So, so essentially the, we had to, we had to break it up into pieces and uh, Troy and his team are are running the day-to-day operations of the resort, which is so complicated and so many moving parts and pieces and then there's plenty of planning work and, and oversight and budgeting and community affairs. And there's, there's 
plenty to spread around between Troy and I. So give us a history lesson here, Taylor. When you got there, you had four or five lifts and a handful of runs. Today, you have 300 runs, tram up to the top of Lone Peak. The place just sprawls. It's enormous. How did we get here? Take us take us from the from that bump in the Montana wild to the world-class resort that you run today. Well, th- thank you for, for calling it a world-class resort. We aspire to that. That is our vision. And, and uh, wow, you know, I would like to say it was a, a, a beautiful, elegant strategy and that we knew then what, what we were going to be now. But, you know, we always, uh, we always had this vision uh, to, to grow. The Kircher family has always uh, reinvested and has always pushed to uh, make things better. But wow, we had such a tremendous asset in Lone Mountain. You just see it and you know that it's a a massive potential, both in acres and vertical, as you mentioned in your introduction. And there were so few lifts and it was so under-actualized then. So it's just been blocking and tackling for, for the almost 50 years of the resort. Uh, and then at the same point as we've been developing the terrain and the ski runs uh, and the infrastructure, you have to develop a business model. And that business model has to grow with your investment. So you've got a, an effective return on investment. And getting the balance of all of those things right is is the hard part, right? Uh, and that's how we got from then to here. So let's let's break this down into pieces because the mountain really had several stages of kind of mega growth to become what it is today. And I think the most significant of those and the one that really sets Big Sky apart is the Lone Peak Tram. And there was nothing inevitable about this tram going in. And in fact, uh, your, your founder and owner at the time, Everett Kircher, was not a fan, reportedly, of the tram. So... Mark Peruzzi, respected ski journalist, breaks this down in a really great article on the Big Sky website. And I'll put that link in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com if the listeners want to go and check that out. Uh, But people take things for granted once they're built, right? It's like, it's there, let's go ride it. But how audacious was this project and how much effort and imagination and willpower and time and money did it take? to make this thing real. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, Mark did a tremendous job of, of going back into the history and capturing the facts and the storylines behind the facts. Uh, what a great piece that is. Uh, it seemed impossible at the time because it hadn't been done. It seems uh, very logical now because we've lived with the tram for, for over 25 years. Um, Back then, we there were a lot of people that did not know if the technology would work. There were some complexities in, in the engineering that had to be overcome. Uh, and then there was the issue of, like, how can we con- control all of that Class A avalanche terrain? Uh, how can we do it safely? Uh, and how can we do it reliably? Uh, and is there going to be snow up there some days and no snow up there other days? So we just figured it out, but we had the right team in place. And the team in place then, the visionary then was John Kircher. And he, he had 
gone through an acquisition to acquire the land. That was the only piece of Forest Service land uh, at the resort in the early days. And he had acquired the land. And I believe he said, well, we own the land and there's the peak. Let's get there. And he set out a he set out a bold vision and uh, he did not communicate very, uh, very clearly with his father about that bold vision. And he got the bold vision well underway before he uh, told his dad about it. And so uh, uh, maybe the sequencing was a little wrong for John, but he knew that that kind of sequencing was necessary to get it done, I believe. Could you even imagine today, Taylor, because you, you, you think back and these days there's, there's social media. Someone will have taken a picture. What are they doing at Lone Peak? I, I mean, Everett's in Michigan. He just has no idea. There's no webcams. He, he doesn't know there's, there's this amazing tram going up at the peak of his flagship resort can you even imagine today something like that happening and the CEO of the company has no idea? No, but uh, but the dynamics of John Kircher and Everett Kircher were, they broke the mold uh, with that dynamic. Uh, and, you know, I, I get it from Everett's point of view. The resort wasn't uh, fantastically financially successful at that point. And he, uh, he, probably didn't want to extend uh, that much on the risk scale. And then the counter punch to that is John Kircher believed that that Big Sky was uh, kind of stagnant as a ski place and it needed to actualize its potential. And you can't ski under the shadow of Lone Peak uh, and feel like you've actualized the potential if you know you have the, the land and have the ability to get to the top. So uh, kind of kind of warring philosophies there. And uh, at the end of the day, John was right uh, with the philosophy. He probably could have been a better communicator. <laughs> did Everett ever accept the lift? He did. He did. Uh, he did. I, I you know, um, I, I think he looks back at, at that as uh I think he looks back at the he looked back at the tram as being important to Big Sky's success, as all the rest of us did. But it took him a while. So talk about the tram. You you, you know, John orders it. It shows up. Mark did a really good job, Mark Peruzzi, of breaking this down in his article. But just talk about how hard it was. Not only the base, not only the the summit to get in, but the base installation as well. Yeah. Our mountain manager at the time was Scott Bowen. And uh, we we brought in Dave Hamry, uh, who was familiar with high alpine construction and Alaskan conditions and, and ski industry. And, you know, the combination of Scott and John and Dave Hamry, they hammered out a lot of details. And then Dave hired some really good alpinists to help build it. But um, the, the top was complicated primarily by its remoteness and its small footprint, you know, postage stamp size footprint up at the top. But you can land a helicopter up there and, and it was stable. Um, but the lower terminal had to sit on a, on a rock glacier uh, and rock glaciers, they're amalgams 
It's an amalgam of rock and ice that moves like a traditional ice glacier. And uh, I, I will go 25 years into the future. Uh, the bottom terminal of the tram has moved over 19 feet uh, in a linear fashion since it was built. So can you imagine engineering something that's, that's, that's moving? And when we were engineering it, we were told that this bottom terminal might have to be reconstructed. It might only have a life of five years or 13 years or some uh, very finite period. And, and here we are 25 years later and it's still functioning great. Uh, although we've made some adjustments to it over the over the time, but uh, the the best piece of news of this whole thing is that the bottom terminal movement is uh, in alignment with the cable, and the cable stretch uh, happens to uh, roughly equal the movement of the tram, and so over those twenty five years, we've only had to replace the cable once. Wow. So, so this is a, this is really a one of a kind lift, uh, a unique lift for North America. Talk about the make and model of this lift and what makes it special. Yeah. So it's a Doppelmayr uh, jig back gondola, uh, technically. And uh, this lift is relatively small, 15 passengers. And uh, we had to build something that we could afford. And we also had to build something that would meet the parameters of the top and the bottom, it had to come in uh, very steep to clear all the rocks along the way. It has no tower uh, from top to bottom, so that made it more affordable. Uh, and then the bottom terminal sits on a rock glacier that's moving, and uh, we needed to make sure we could build a structure that would... Uh, it's a monolithic structure, so the structure is tied together. So if any part of the structure moves, the entirety of the structure moves. So uh, the building isn't going to break and break a pit apart. Uh, it might tilt or, or move linearly, and uh, that was all in the in the original Doppelmayr design, uh, and. Uh, Dave Hamry is the guy who figured out how to do it, and he had a great team of people around him doing it. And it's lasted 25 years. So you get it in. It's a really unique, really special lift. I'd imagine if the CEO didn't know it was going in, most of the rest of the country didn't either. But talk about how the installation of that tram changed the character of Big Sky, especially as word started to spread of the kind of terrain you have hanging off the top of Lone Peak. Yeah. So we all thought that the tram would would bring us national recognition, and it did. Uh, 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 there was an article and uh, there were articles in all the major national ski publications almost immediately. The New York Times uh, did a piece uh, uh, almost immediately on it. Uh, and our visitation ju jumped by, oh, gee, 20% that, that first year that we opened it. So uh, it, was, it was considered a resounding success from, from the get-go. And talk about the terrain. For those who, who may not have been to Big Sky, talk about that terrain off of Lone Peak and how that is distinct from the rest of the terrain that you have around Big Sky. 
Well, Big Sky, we're blessed as a ski area. You know, the biggest skiing in America is that phrase means many things, not just vertical drop, not just acres of skiing, but quality of snow. And it also means the the balance of of beginner, intermediate, expert, and uh, triple black diamond ski runs like we have up on the tram, right? It uh, There is not an easy way down from the tram. Uh, it, uh, it opens hundreds and hundreds of acres of ski terrain, some of it's south-facing, some of it's east-facing, some of it's north-facing. Um, and... Uh, and when you get out of the tram car cabin up at the top, uh, it's a 360 degree unobstructed view for tens of miles in most directions. Uh, you can even see the top of the Grand Teton uh, from from uh, the top of Lone Peak. And so it uh, it's just a knock your socks off view, and then the skiing is uh, like you read about. So you mentioned Taylor that one of your big concerns when you were considering putting the tram in was whether patrol would be able to manage it, and I'd imagine that means both from an avalanche point of view and just metering the skiers or or weeding them out to be honest to make sure that folks weren't getting in over their heads. So how did you do that? Because they're, you know, it's steep terrain, as you said, there's, it's really sustained steep terrain, those double, triple black diamonds. Some of them go on for more than a thousand vertical feet. So how did you get to a place? What was your plan that you came up with to be able to manage both nature and man on that peak? You know, there have been a few people and many patrollers in that group of a few uh, that would hike up to the summit and ski that terrain, although it was a long hike. Uh, but um, and then we we pre-skied it uh, in the seasons beforehand, uh, anticipating that we were going to build this tram. So we we knew that we had to have technical alpine. Uh, skills in our ski patrol for for technical rescue, rope toboggan rescue, and so we built all those programs, uh, uh, anticipating in in the years that we opened it, and then the avalanche control was a a big piece of it, uh, uh, making sure we had enough people with the right skill set to to manage to that. And then that third piece that you bring up of, of educating skiers, well, Lone Peak looks so uh, ominous that that's somewhat self-controlling. Okay. Uh, the guests, the guests, uh, the guests can see that they're getting into something. Now we're we all have a certain amount of arrogance or cockiness that doesn't serve us well sometimes, and sometimes sometimes people get up there that uh, maybe the conditions aren't just right, or maybe they shouldn't have been up there that that uh, that shouldn't be there. But uh, generally, it's, uh, it's uh, self-policing and people that should be up there are up there and people that shouldn't be there don't go. And nonetheless, you do have some safeguards in place to ski Big Kolar and uh, in the North Summit snowfield. So talk about that check-in process and what's required of skiers before they ski those runs. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Beacon Probe Shovel uh, was was the full ritual for years and years up there. 
and you still need uh, a beacon and uh, for, for some some of the limited terrain you mentioned the the Kular and the North Summit snowfield uh, and that 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 weeds people out uh, or maybe I should say it a different way that that proves that they have thought about it and presumably if they've thought about it they've got the skill set to ski that kind of terrain but there's a lot of terrain up there uh, Lennon Marks Liberty Bowl the gullies where that equipment isn't required. We only require that equipment for uh, the biggest of that big terrain. I also think it's really interesting that you have to sign in with Ski Patrol to ski those runs, and you only allow two skiers down Big Kolar every 15 minutes. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't want people on top of one another. Uh, you know, in case somebody falls up high, you don't want them to. To, to be a bowling, bowling ball taking out the, the pins of skiers below them. But, um, but it's as much about keeping it from getting moguled up. We really believe in the ski experience up there and everywhere. And qualitatively, uh, the Kular wouldn't be any fun if it was uh, a mogul field, nor would the North Summit snow field or any of that terrain up there. So this is one of the tools that sign out you're talking about. This is one of the tools to, to limit the number of people that can get into this very narrow, constricted terrain uh, to, to prevent uh, it from mogling out or the snow to get all skied down to rocks or something like that. I'll talk more about that later because I have a feeling you're going to ask us about the new tram, but I'm going to save that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I do want to focus a little bit more on the old tram first. So Peruzzi brought up a really good point. He, he noted that in the 1990s, ski areas had taken a very defensive posture. And that's around the time I started skiing was around the time that you put the Lone Peak Tram in was the mid 90s. And I was living in Michigan at the time, and there were really no marked glades anywhere. And in a lot of cases, if they caught you skiing the trees, they would rip your lift ticket and kick you right out. There was a very much a sense of we need to protect ourselves against liability. And Perusi brought up the point that opening up Lone Peak was helping the industry reset that and attract a different breed and type of skiers that would then, and, and the, the, the ripple effects of that were that folks saw that it worked at Big Sky, that as you said, people self-regulated and you started seeing more of this kind of terrain open around the country. So just talk a little bit about that phenomenon and how Big Sky helped to rewire the ski uh, ski industry that had become very afraid of itself. So a little history, the, in, the insurance market goes through cycles where some things are very insurable and then those same things later are not at all insurable. And the ski industry had had some big claims and big jury verdicts with uh, that scared the not only the ski industry, but more scared the insurance industry. So uh, in the late 80s or early 90s, uh, uh, insurance rates for the ski industry doubled and tripled. And some little places just were forced out of business because they couldn't afford it. Um, during that period, Boyne decided to create an offshore 
and uh, to, to get through that insurance crisis. But uh, I think that's what drove the ski industry to be a little more conservative and to uh, uh, reduce its risk. And yes, at the time, uh, this was considered uh, too much risk for a lot of ski areas to, to take on. But uh, that was mitigated by the John Kircher factor. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about John. Stephen Kircher, uh, born CEO, has been on the podcast a couple of times. Very good friend of the program. Uh, but John is a legend in the industry as well. And and he he has a big reputation both at Big Sky and at Crystal, as you mentioned, as as being really bold and opening up these new ter- new terrain pods, which he did the same thing at Crystal. So just talk a little bit about John and his spirit and character. Yeah, yeah. John, John's, you know, just very optimistic, uh, huge, huge, charismatic person, personality and smile and uh, just a, an elegant, beautiful, powerful skier. And uh, he was he was set to build a ski mountain. He wasn't a, he wasn't uh, driven by real estate development or or the global resort experience as much as he was driven by the ski experience. I, I absolutely believe that he felt if he built the best ski mountain, then the rest would follow. And uh, and he did. Uh, he would he would get in the snow cats and groom at night, and he would go out with patrol in the morning, and and he just lived, um, he just lived the mountain, and and his charisma, and and vision for what seemed to be impossible is uh, what it, during the early phases of Big Sky was so critical to our success. And will people still find John bombing around Big Sky today? Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he, he says he's retired. I don't believe it. Uh, and, uh, he, uh, he lives in big sky part of the year now. And, uh, I think he skis every day. So, so back to the tram here, you know, Taylor, we've seen the tram weight lines grow and grow and grow to the point where you had to put in the reservation system this year. We'll talk about that in a moment, but first just take us back in time. When that tram cracked open in 1995, and no one had ever seen anything like it in America before, what was it like getting on the tram back then? Could you walk right on? Would it get backed up? What What were the old days like at Big Sky? Yeah, you could you could pretty much walk right on. Uh, our skier visitation, in general, was not nearly as as uh, robust as it is now, and. Um, yeah, you could. Uh, you might have to wait a few minutes, or on the busiest, sunniest, most perfect days, you might have to wait a half an hour. That would have been a long wait back then. So, was there an inflection point where it just stopped being so easy, or was it a very gradual thing that happened over the decades? <laughs> you know, I think different people would answer that question differently. <laughs> uh, I, how I remember it was gradual. You know, this. This whole growth of Big Sky, it's a 20-mile march. We, we, we haven't done it overnight. We couldn't do it overnight. And I think it has been a gradual progression. But, uh, you know, in the, last, uh, in the last few years before this one, it got so that uh, on the perfect sunny day, the tram line could be hour, hour and a half, even longer sometimes. Uh, and uh, a 40 or a 50-minute or an hour tram line during the peak of the season up until this year uh, was not unusual. 
Now, this year, we've changed things up a little bit, uh, and the tram line hasn't been nearly that long this year. Talk about those changes, why you did it, and how it's working out. Yeah, so uh, our general manager, Troy Nedved, uh, working with his team, uh, Neil Johnson and, 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 and Tom Marshall, uh, they, they had technology on their side with access data, lift ticketing, uh, which was new to us. And, and we were able to uh, remove the tram from most of the, the normal lift ticketing and season's passes. And uh, if you wanted to ride the tram, you would purchase an upgrade. And uh, their goal was to get the tram line uh, uh, average down to about 25 minutes. And... Uh, and through pricing model and, and yielding and and uh, these and some tools like that, uh, they were able to to do that most days. Uh, and of course, some people hated that idea, and some people loved that idea. And uh, I think that. Uh, I think it cuts both ways, but at the end of the day, uh, it's a better experience for those people that are on the tram right now. You know, when an idea is new, a lot of critics come out and a lot of times this phenomenon of people either get used to it or they forget about it or they see that it works pretty well. How have you seen opinions evolve over the course of this season as folks have seen how it works? Yeah, uh, I am. I'm about twenty to one receiving compliments to criticisms. Now, I'm not saying that's how the general population feels, but uh, but but so many people uh, just love it now. And how many how many people have you seen taking advantage of this? Because it's you know you set the price point fairly high which I imagine is prohibitive for some folks. And I believe you're limiting the number each day. Are you, do you have a sense of, are you selling out most days? Is there extra capacity? How has it been going just from an actual volume standpoint and people deciding that it's worth it to buy up? Well, so our goal is to sell out every day and to not oversell any day. And so we, we, we vary the price for a, uh, for a single ticket purchaser, the upgrade varies between um, uh, fifty and a hundred dollars. Uh, and uh, on the days that we know there is going to be tremendous demand, it goes up to a hundred dollar premium for all the tram rides you want that day. Uh, and then on days with very little demand, it'll it'll go to the bottom end of that. Um, and, but, you know, there are a lot more people riding the tram than just the day ticket purchasers. Uh, there are seasons pass holders, and some of those seasons passes have a tram access embedded in it, and others of those passes do not. Uh, and that just goes back to the, the whole dynamics of, of pricing and, and yielding and modeling, which is a, a science unto itself, applying to the whole ski area, not just the tram. Yeah, we'll definitely get into passes in a little bit here. Let's talk first about the upgrades you have coming. You announced a monster gondola and tram complex that is going to go 
from the base of the mountain village all the way to the top of Lone Peak. I've covered this extensively in the storm, but break this down for us, Taylor. What do you have in mind? What's coming to Big Sky and when? Sure. So several years ago, we announced our vision 2025, and we outlined a a series of major lift uh, replacements, our our new lifts. We've replaced Challenger with a a new Doppelmayr carpet load. We replaced uh, an old fixed grip triple with a high-speed Doppelmayr 6. We replaced a, a, a Doppelmayr quad in our base area with a new Doppelmayr uh, D-Line 8. Uh, we just this past summer, we uh, replaced a high-speed quad with a Doppelmayr D-Line 6. And the announcement that we've just made is we're replacing the, the, the tram and we're going to be building a, another gondola. So the tram's coming first. We're going to start that work this summer. It's a, a two-year project. The existing tram will continue to operate during the construction of the new tram. And this new tram, uh, it's going to be a much bigger cabin size. We we haven't gotten into the we haven't publicized the the details of that, but a much bigger cabin size than we currently have and a smaller cabin size than some of the biggest cabins in the U.S. And that's strategic. Um, And the lower terminal is in a completely different location. Uh, It's in the base of the bowl. And when we build the gondola, uh, and the gondola is going to be one year behind the tram, also on a two-year construction cycle, so you will leave from the base area of the resort and uh, travel up this gondola and pass a mid-station learning center and continue on to the base of the bowl where you will exit this gondola and in that same terminal uh, configuration, you'll be able to walk over and board the tram uh, for the trip to Lone Peak. It sounds incredible. Let's break this down piece by piece. So let's start with the tram. So the it was interesting when you said that there wasn't much room at the at the top of Lone Peak for the current tram station. Have you have you figured out a different solution for where to land the tram? How are you going to get a bigger tram box up to the top when the smaller station was a challenge to begin with? Right. So we've got some really smart engineers and architects and and Doppelmayr builders. And they have uh, helped us uh, leave the existing upper tram terminal in place. And uh, we're locating the new tram terminal right up at the summit of Lone Peak at uh, 11,166 feet. If the the tram lines would cross one another, uh, so... So we, uh, we will be able to operate our existing tram during construction. But the last thing we will do is we'll de-rope our, our, our existing tram and put the new rope up for the, the new tram. Uh, and uh, there, the terminal buildings are going to be about oh, 50 or 60 feet separated from one another. And uh, there's, there's room up there, but... Uh, not a lot of room. And by the time you think about managing snow and managing skiers up there, um, that real estate is 
fall. Is there something that changed in the last 27 years that allows you technologically or from an engineering point of view to put that station where you're going to put it for the new tram that wasn't an option that was available in 1995? Yeah, great question. We thought about every scenario. We, we, uh, we, it, it comes down to not a technological issue, but the alignment. And uh, we, for our new tram, there is one tower, uh, a big latticework tower that, uh, as you recall, the existing tram does not have a tower. So the existing tram, it had to have a path where you could allow for the catenary curve of the rope to sag and not hit any rock. Well, the, the new tram terminal is uh, very near the old tram terminal, but the lower tram terminal is a mile away. It's in a different place altogether. And we had to get over this big rib of rock and we do that with a tower. And, and that's the, the biggest difference of, of this tram. That's so interesting. Where will the tower be? Uh, right above the first gully, uh, at about uh, ten thousand eight hundred, uh, ten thousand nine hundred feet, somewhere in there. Is it going to be on a run, an active run? No, no, it's not. It's not going to be on an active run. This tower, uh, as well as the upper tram terminal, it'll it'll be built with high alpine machinery and helicopters and, and people that really know what they're doing. And they'll be drilling in anchors and uh, it'll, it, it'll be a really fun construction project to build if you're a builder or to observe if you're an observer. Uh, it's, it's very European-like. What will be the fate of the top and bottom terminals of the current tram? Are you going to keep those around as facilities buildings? Or are you going to demolish them? We don't know the answer to those questions completely yet. Uh, the, the, the existing top terminal will be redefined substantially, if not removed. Uh, my hunch is that it will be um, minimalized in size and some pieces of it would, would remain in place uh, for some future purpose, but we will minimalize uh, the uh, the, the way it appears to look up on top of the peak. And then the lower tram terminal, wow, could that be a really cool restaurant or bar or something up on the mountain? So uh, we haven't gotten into that. We haven't baked that cake yet, but I bet it'll be a pretty good cake when we do bake it. How about the cars, Taylor, the tram cars? you have any ideas for those? Yeah, well, the existing tram cabins look kind of like a, a, a cola can. Uh, they're, they're cylindrical and tall. The, the new cabins are, uh, are going to be constructed unique for this purpose, and uh, they will have the ability to uh, operate in the summer and the winter, summer for scenic uses, winter for ski uses. Uh, they will, it will have the capacity to haul water and materials to the top uh, for anything else that might be needed up at the top. Uh, and they will be, uh, it'll be a pretty elegant design. Do you think that you'll keep the tram surcharge in place or is it too soon to say? 
I don't know. Uh, I uh, and and I wouldn't be surprised if we start with one thing and it evolves to something else. We uh, we are not afraid to pivot and to change things. But my hunch now is that there will be a surcharge. And when I was speaking with Stephen Kircher and the rest of the team at Big Sky when you were announcing this tram, he mentioned that there's really going to be a focus on sightseers and non-skiers. Not a focus, but but it, a big part of this project is enabling them, these wintertime tourists who are not necessarily skiers or snowboarders, to access this, right? So the focus is still on the skiing, but but you you have this whole other crowd that goes up. So how big of a part of the equation is that as you try to figure out how do you meter people up with these bigger tram boxes to the top of Lone Peak? Because it is still this high alpine environment where you have to be careful not to let too many people up there or you're going to ski the snow right off. Yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't a third or half of the capacity on some days. Uh, there's because you couldn't you couldn't go there you couldn't go to the lower you cannot get to the lower tram terminal now as a pedestrian but you will in the future with the gondola it will take you right there so a non-skier can leave the village and go all the way to the top of, of lone peak now on the new tram um, and then there's also the the capacity issue of how many skiers you want to go off the top of lone peak and that might be different in December than it is in March. Uh, so just because we have a capacity of X doesn't mean we're going to load it for a skier capacity of X. Um, I think the tram, the tram cabin size, I believe it's going to uh, have a lot of scenic use and that scenic use will not be in conflict with skier use. Uh, that's, that's our hope. So let's talk about the gondola now. At one time, you mentioned when you when you arrived at Big Sky, there was a gondola coming out of the mountain village. At one point, you had two gondolas coming out of the base. Both of those are now gone, and the Swift Current 6 runs up the approximate line of one of those. The other one is just gone. Why did you take the gondolas out in the first place, Taylor, and why are you bringing one back? Well, those gondolas... Um they were fully appreciated, right? And uh, gondolas are very expensive, very complicated machines. And we, we needed more lift capacity than those, those gondolas had. So that's why they were replaced. Um, and in the new gondola is gonna be so much bigger than these old generation gondolas. They're, they're going to travel faster. They're gonna be the fastest lift line speed uh, that exist in Big Sky uh, of a ski lift. Um, and uh, they're going to be, uh, it's just going to have tremendous capacity to get guests out of the base area. So that's, that's, one of the, uh, that's one of the goals. Big Sky has a really big base area too. It's not a congested, too tight base area where everybody clumps up in the same place. We're really spread out nicely. And this gondola is going to anchor the north side of our village. Uh, so that's another good reason for it. Uh, this gondola is going to serve our beginner skiers uh, too. And then the mid station that you heard me talking about a few minutes ago uh, is going to go to a learning center 
and uh, uh, and the ski terrain both above and below this learning center is just excellent beginner terrain. Um, and uh, this gondola will replace our, our last legacy lift. It's going to replace the Explorer double chair that's original to the resort from 1973. So there are a lot of good reasons to, uh, to build this gondola. That, that last reason is, is the least of the reasons to build it, however. Do you feel any, a little tug on your heartstrings, Taylor, taking out the Explorer 2 lift? That last lift left from when you pulled up to, uh, up to the mountain in 1981? No, not at all. I'm not nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> so what can we find or expect to find when we get off at that beginner area? Is this a, a high al- alpine true beginner area? Are you going to have some carpets up there? Is it just, or is it, is it made really more for those people who are off the bunny hill? What, what are we going to find? Well, you know, because Big Sky Resort owns this land, we're not a U.S. Forest Service area, so our we we have the ability to change and pivot and and do things that uh, a lot of ski areas are constrained from doing. Uh, so, what is it going to look like in ten years or fifteen years? I'm I'm not sure, but for start, it's going to have uh, a learning. A learning building and uh, some food, and uh, we will have uh, a carpet. Our carpets there, and we also have the ability to build another aerial lift in this in this zone. So there's a lot of potential, and the American ski consumer is 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 reminding us that they really like instruction and like guiding and. Our snow sports school business uh, is is growing rapidly, even faster than the the general resort growth. So this new state of the art learning center that's up at the mid station of the gondola, it's going to be something else. You just wait. So once this goes in, you're going to have three high speed out of base lifts out of the mountain village. You'll have Ram Charger eight and Swift Current 6, which you mentioned earlier. And this new gondola is going to rise from not too far away from those two lifts. That's going to give you an out-of-base capacity of approximately 10,000 skiers per hour. Just talk about how that's going to change the experience of someone skiing at Big Sky. And that's correct. Uh, you know, with that f- over 5,000 acres of skiing, we've got a tremendous amount of, of uh, terrain available. So we've always had this philosophy. We don't want guests waiting in line. Uh, you know, waiting in a lift line is a, is a big downer. And we've never had many lift lines in Big Sky. Uh, a five or a 10 minute lift line in Big Sky seems like forever. Uh, and, um, and so this capacity that we're building out of our base area, it's designed to uh, anticipate our growth and to help us absorb some of the visitation growth that we've seen over the last few years and to stay ahead of the curve. Because uh, once we get our guests up on the mountain, uh, there's plenty of room for everybody up there. So really exciting project. And when do you anticipate that being totally done? I, I was under the impression it would all be open for the 2023 to 24 ski season, but it sounds like you're saying the tram might be done first. 
and the gondola may follow. What is the timeline approximately? Well, we're starting the tram this summer and it's a two-year project. We'll get all the concrete and uh, work done, all the engineering, grade work, concrete. And then next summer, uh, the steel and the final machinery placement happens. And then the gondola, uh, our goal is to have it uh, chase the tram by one year and be on a, on a two-year construction cycle as well. So you've been on this just amazing building streak there at Big Sky. You've put in four high-speed lifts in five years, including those two D-line detaches. You've got this big gondola and tram coming in. Nonetheless, as I mentioned in the intro, you have 39 lifts there at Big Sky. I imagine you're never really done. So what's on your wish list long-term, Taylor, for upgrades? Yeah, well, uh, we've completed the 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 2025 vision that we had articulated. So what's next? Uh, there, we have these wonderful hotels that either have just been built or are being built, the Montage to the south of us and the one and only to the north of us. Let's talk about the Montage first that's south of us uh, in the Spanish Peaks Club. And uh, I, I think that the Montage guest would be well served by a lift going from that building to the top of Andesite. Uh, that's just a that's just a, a vision. Uh, same thing for the the one and only the Moonlight Basin terrain that you mentioned that we acquired in 2013. Uh, there is uh, a lot of of new terrain that isn't skied right now that could be developed there. Uh, and that would require uh, some partnering with uh, with uh, one of our, our neighbor developing companies. Uh, and then uh, and then there's some terrain that's inbounds of the existing ski area that we have that would benefit from a new lift. Uh, uh, would provide more direct access to terrain that we're currently skiing. So uh, there's no shortage of lift projects. Uh, on our on our palette for the next uh, five or ten years, those just being a few of them. Well, let's talk about that Moonlight Basin terrain pod for a moment here, because you you have this six shooter, a six pack, going up lookers left, and it serves this big terrain pod, but a lot of it is not directly accessible, and you have to take Lone Tree Four up in order to access it. it the most obvious spot it would seem would be to put in another lift lookers right on the on that terrain has that been talked about or considered yeah uh gosh you're you're letting all the secrets out of the bag uh <laughs> or you just know how to look at a trail map and look at ski terrain you should be in the lift business so that's one of the lifts that we're talking about we would call that the lookout ridge lift because it would terminate up at the top of of the ski run lookout ridge and that would be that 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 place is just begging for a, a, a high speed Doppelmeyer D line lift. Uh, it would help with it would help with a lift capacity, um, which sometimes uh, is needed at the bottom of the existing six shooter lift, and it would also provide uh, uh, super direct access to a place that's indirectly accessed now. And where do you envision the base of that lift being? Would it be near Six Shooter? 
Yeah, yeah. Within a stone's throw of the bottom of six shooters, the best place for the lookout ridge lift. Have you thought about if a sixer is right for that or a, a quad? What are you thinking there? Um, you know, it needs to be high speed for sure. Uh, I think uh, I think a, a six place lift would be the right lift for that. So as you mentioned some more terrain possibilities that haven't been developed yet. Are you talking about that, that forest skiers left of the current Moonlight Basin terrain? Um, you know, th- there are little pods of terrain uh, all around our mountain that, that we haven't we haven't fully developed or actualized yet. Again, because we're not Forest Service, we can we can go back into places that already have lifts and and clear more runs, create more glades, and uh, I'm, I I don't think we have enough time to go into the detail of all of these pods, <laughs> but uh, uh, there are several. All right, next time for that. The the former versions of the 2025 plan, Taylor had suggested eminent replacements of Southern Comfort, Iron Horse, and Lone Moose. Any eminent plans for any of those lifts? Yeah, um, the uh, uh, we haven't we haven't announced any of those plans yet. Uh, if if it was up to me, I would uh, I would do the the Lookout Ridge lift first, and uh, then I would I would get on to some of these other lift projects later. But we haven't put uh, we haven't put time frames are absolutely prioritized any of these new lifts. Uh, why? Because we've got our hands absolutely full right now with this tram and this gondola. Don't you just love skiers? You announce a, uh, what's probably like an $80 million project. And the first thing you can do before it's even built is the first thing we can do is ask you what's next. <laughs> it should be like a baby. We'll spoon feed you one spoon at a time. All right, let's talk about Moonlight Basin here, Taylor. This is really interesting. It was a separate ski area up until 2013 when Big Sky bought it and absorbed it. How did that deal come about? Yeah, well, you know, the the economic uh, crash, the, the real estate bubble took down so many good businesses and uh, it took down Moonlight Basin. Uh, Moonlight Basin hadn't been operating long enough to to become profitable. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately for, for that group of investors and, and that visionary uh, Lee Poole, uh, it, it was not, he was not able to actualize that. And then uh, in the course of, of a, a distress sale, uh, uh, the Lone Mountain Land Company, uh, which is a local real estate development uh, organization, and ourselves were able to to partner and uh, acquire the Moonlight Terrain and uh, all the real estate development uh, pod of the historic Moonlight was carved off to the Lone Mountain Land Company, and the vast majority of the ski terrain was carved off to Big Sky Resort, and. Uh, that was able to put Big Sky Resort and Moonlight Basin, which until that point had been operating as neighboring competitive ski areas. It was able to put us under one lift ticket under and gather all the efficiencies of one accounting firm, one 
one lift maintenance crew, one ski patrol, one cat operations crew. We were able to gain all those efficiencies and turn something that had never operated profitably and might not have ever operated profitably, hard to know. We're able to consolidate and gain efficiencies. And uh, that all happened in 2013. And uh, it's been one of the the big turning points of, of making Big Sky even better. How did it change Big Sky from a skiing point of view, from a guest perception point of view, of just making it this massive European-style ski circus? Yeah, it, it added almost 2,000 acres of ski wow. terrain. Uh, it uh, It's north-facing terrain, so the bad part of that is it's cold. The good part of that is it can have really good snow. Uh, one of the beauties, beauties of skiing Big Sky in this over 5,000 acres is we ski 360 degrees of solar aspect on four or five different mountain um, peaks or mini peaks. So it's we're not like one of these mountains that all faces the same direction uh, and all gets the same solar aspect. And so Moonlight Basin really added a, a, a lot of north-facing terrain and a lot of north-facing aspect. And it has two types of skiing at Moonlight, either, either very cool, grooming, intermediate, mm-hmm. or uh, poop-your-pants steeps. <laughs> and, uh, and it's got both of those in spades. And by blending Moonlight with Big Sky uh, terrain proper, uh, it it made Moonlight better and it made Big Sky Resort better. You know, it's interesting you talk about all those different aspects of the mountain. Your trail maps have a little quirk to them. It seems like every other year you switch the point of view from which this very nice new house map is drawn. So in some of them, you're looking kind of straight on with, with Lone Peak on the right and Andesite on the left. And then in other times, you're looking straight on at Andesite with with Big Sky in the background, do you alternate it every other year? Just talk about your trail map and, and that quirky little piece of it and why you do that. Yeah, I'm going to talk about a really smart guy, Jim Nehus, who you just mentioned, right? Uh, he is the master, the father of great trail map art. And he, he recognized that all these different mountains and all of these solar aspects and how do you make on a, a one plane one-dimensional flat sheet of paper, how do you show something 360 degrees? And so he flew it in airplanes and looked at it with satellite imagery and and applied his, uh, his brain to it. And he figured out all of those different orientations and, to way to bra- and the way to break up the map so you could, uh, you could figure it out as a skier and uh, and it was accurately representing what's on the ground. Yeah, it, it's really beautiful. And, and so, why do you why do you alternate from year to year? <laughs> uh, I I I I can't tell you. I I <laughs> I you, you know stop the chomp on that one. <laughs> Wait, you can't tell me because it's a big secret, or you can't tell me because <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> I, I would like to tell you that it was it was some big secret, but I don't 
I do not know. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about the Icon Pass, Taylor. Icon Pass did not get a super warm welcome in Big Sky among certain circles. It got to the point where you took to the local paper, penned an editorial, said, hey, guys, chill out. We all came here at some point. Has that sentiment evolved? That was in the 2018-19 season. Has the sentiment evolved as we're in year four of Icon Pass going into year five? Or are you still facing that Icon backlash? Oh, it's, it's, it's calmed down substantially, right? Uh, you know, things humans don't like things that are new. I, sometimes I don't like things that are new. And, and that was kind of, you know, the, the icon brought in a, a lot of new skiers that year. And uh, uh, I, I remember having a conversation with some leaders from Vail that were touring Big Sky that same year. And it's right after I'd penned the letter and they, they kind of felt sorry for me because they had gone through exactly the same thing at their resorts. And they, they said, you know, Taylor, this, this will go away. Uh, it's just the, it's just people getting used to things. And largely they were true. Uh, but we've also adapted in the way we, we sell passes and icon uh, uh, access. And so we're constantly evolving and, uh, I think people have gotten used to it. And look at how much more lift capacity we've added uh, since 2018-19 uh, season as well. Absolutely. You did decide, Taylor, to add Icon Pass or require Icon Pass reservations for next season, the 2022-23 to 23 ski season. Talk about that decision. Yeah, we're just hedging our bet on that. Uh, you know, our new gondola, that 10,000 out of the base area, it's not going to be ready yet. Uh, the new tram's not going to be ready yet. Uh, we, uh, we're listening to uh, what the feedback we're getting. And so we're giving ourselves the, the option to, to manage our visitation uh, a little better than we currently can, if necessary. You also did something else after the first year, and that was to begin including, or actually this was in the in the third season, to begin including an icon base pass with the top level of the Big Sky Pass. And they did the same thing at Jackson Hole. And I asked Mary-Kate Buckley, the CEO over there, I asked her, you know, did that help calm the locals down? And she said, well... Not really, because most of them just want to ski Jackson Hole. So I, I don't know if you're going to tell me the same thing. You know, do your locals really just want to ski Big Sky, or did that help them a little bit when they could have that base pass and go ski elsewhere if they wanted to? Yes, and yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, no two skiers are exactly alike, and there are a lot of skiers that want to ski around and and uh, traveling and go to Europe or, or, or go uh, all over the West and, and having an icon embedded in their, uh, their goal seasons pass is wonderful. But, but some people are just like Mary Kate says, they're just loyal to one resort and they don't like to travel and they just like to ski every single powder day. Uh, so it, it cuts both ways, but uh, being able to get an icon embedded in your uh, in certain uh, Big Sky Resort Seasons Pass products, uh, that's a pretty good deal. So two seasons ago, Aspen and Jackson Hole left the Icon Base Pass. Alta and Deer Valley followed them this past season, and Sun Valley and Snow Basin, which are new partners to the Icon Pass this year, opted out of the Base Pass. I kind of thought Big Sky 
would follow along because you had the same issue with the locals not being so happy about it. Uh, but you never have. And at this point, it looks like you figured out a different strategy, which is, is from my point of view, it's metering tram access and it's requiring reservations. Did you think about leaving the Icon Base Pass and why didn't you? Well, yeah, that's a question that, that we think about. Um, we don't want to be whipsawing around uh, doing something and then going back and then doing it and then going back. We, we are really believing that this new tram and this new gondola are going to add so much capacity that uh, not to mention those lifts that I, we've just added over the last few years that I've already mentioned. Um, big Sky is big. And we are not nearly as constrained as a lot of these other resorts you've mentioned in our base areas. And um, we want to, uh, uh, we want to, we don't believe we need to do it right now, right? Uh, we might in the future, but let's see how the tram and the gondola do before we answer that question. So the Icon Pass is really not a new concept from, from the point of view of Boyne, which has long offered its pass holders days at its other resorts. So most top Boyne pass holders got three days at Big Sky and have for, for decades, as far as I know. So how big of a percentage of your visitors is that? Is Sugarloaf or Sunday River or Boyne Mountain pass holders coming out to visit Big Sky? Well, you know, I'm going to go back to Icon as I answer that question, too. Uh, the ski resorts, uh, the ski business, it's really small in the big picture of things. And very few resorts have the luxury of just saying, I'm only going to take this type of skier and no other skier. So uh, the, the National Pass program like Icon has been really great for skiing, and it's a really great value product for all these uh, tens of thousands of, of people that have icon passes. And that applies to, uh, to the Boyne Pass too. Uh, back 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, when Boyne first purchased Big Sky, uh, the Boyne Loyal Skiers uh, from Michigan helped make Big Sky profitable, although they were skiing here uh, on their existing passes, they were buying lodging and buying food and, and discovering Big Sky and telling all their friends, which is that kind of organic growth that makes skiing work. Uh, I can't, I, it, it would just be impossible for me to overstate how important those uh, Boyne resorts, but years ago, it was only a few, now it's a lot. Uh, those seasons pass holders from other Boyne resorts coming to Big Sky. It's so important to us and it's so much fun to host them. Uh, although I'm really getting tired of, of pulling uh, Sugarloaf stickers off my lips. <laughs> I will send word up to Maine for you, Taylor, but it, it's, it's such <laughs> a... They all bring stickers with them. They all bring stickers with them. And, and so they're so proud of these places. Like I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a million Big Sky Resort stickers to Sugarloaf and to Sunny <laughs> River, and I'm going to plaster all their lifts. Take that, Dana Bullen. <laughs> the Sugarloafer is a proud breed indeed. And, and it's funny what you say about Michigan, because I grew up in Michigan about two hours south of Boyne Mountain, and Big Sky was spoken of so reverently there. And everyone just... I think there was a lot of pride in Michigan that 
this little Michigan place owned this big Western mountain. And that was the top place that everyone I knew who had the means to go out West would do that. They would use their Boyne passes and they would go out to Big Sky. And that relationship has been very strong. And Boyne was really a pioneer in in that sort of multi-mountain network and establishing that connection between its mountains. One of the first things that Everett Kircher did in 1976 when he bought Big Sky, he had a private plane and he would put clients from Michigan. Sometimes they were they were group clients like Sidney Goldstein, and uh, and uh, sometimes they were individual skiers like Barbara Dietrich, and he'd bring them out to Big Sky, or he'd make sure that they got out here, and and they became our customers for life out here. In addition to to doing things in Michigan, they would make a a trip out here for a full week every year for decades. It's uh, it, it's really a, a cool relationship. And as you've seen the Boyne Network grow, have you seen that coming from other places as well? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Every time you add, uh, every time another resort is added, like Shawnee uh, this year, uh, it, it creates a whole new uh, segment of skiers that will start visiting. And it's, it's just it's just so much fun meeting these people and. And, and they come out here just like you said. They they feel like they, you know, skiers have a uh, an ownership like belief in whatever their home ski area is, and uh, and they have that pride uh, when they can go to another new acquisition or another new place that's part of the same company. So let's just dig into your season passes a little bit more here because I think that Boyne has a really interesting way of doing season passes that does help to manage that ski experience. You you look at the top tier pass and it's really expensive. So your gold pass at Big Sky this year debuted at $2,300, but that includes unlimited access every day, unlimited tram access, an icon base pass, probably a whole bunch of other things. Then you go down to your green pass. That's just 539 bucks. That's a midweek pass, holiday blackouts, no tram. But I mean, that still gets you probably a hundred days or more on the mountain. So just talk about that philosophy of, of using pricing to as a mechanism to meter crowding while still really creating products that are affordable to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that old saying, it can't be everything to everybody, right? But you can. And you just have to, to uh, be flexible, both the resort and the customer, if they're flexible, we can be everything to everybody. Ideally, if you could just take a a butter knife and smooth visitation so it's flat. So it's exactly the same from the day you open until the day you close. That would be perfect. And then even during the day from starting it, we could open earlier. We could open at eight o'clock in the morning and ski until five in the afternoon and just the same level of visitation. And that would, that would spread, uh, that would spread customers out in the parking lots and it would spread customers out in the restaurants and the bathrooms and it would spread them out between Christmas and January. And the tool to, to do that is with technology and uh, with these data-driven uh, electronic ticketing systems now. You can see what everyone is doing and you can develop pricing models our, our, our head of 
marketing, uh, Jan Benjamin, uh, he and our head of ticketing, Neil Johnson. These are the two of the smartest guys I, I know. And, and between the two of them, with a lot of help from other people that they work with, I think they have the ability to spread skier visitation out. And for the people that want quality, want that tram, great tram experience, or want to ski on Christmas Day, they're willing to pay up for that quality. And the people that want value, they're able to, to bend their schedule and flex their schedule around so they can ski earlier in the morning, but not all day, or ski on Wednesdays, not on Saturdays. They can get the best value. And that's how we're going to do it. You just described a really sophisticated operation with some really smart people. And, you know, these, these, you have tens of millions of dollars worth of lifts on the mountain and you're, you're putting in this whole complex into places, thousands, thousands of acres. Taylor, just thinking back, and I know you said you're not sentimental, but could you ever have imagined 41 years ago when you first got on a lift at Big Sky that it would ever be what it is today? No, I, I pinch myself. <laughs> Uh, it, it's uh, it's been a great uh, it's been a great run and uh, it's, it's a great community. The community of Big Sky is uh, very much uh, a part of the success that we're having here, and uh, and you know it's our job to do all of these things and to grow our our, our resort uh, intelligently and uh, uh, not screw it up and and getting that balance right is uh, really hard and really important. And that's what I'm trying to do. All right, last thing before I let you go here, Taylor, I wanna talk about housing. Big Sky has really been a leader in building employee housing for quite a long time. Just talk about the scale of what Big Sky has done and the effort and imagination you've put behind that and resources. Yeah, it's decades. So you heard me say there are uh, about 1,700 employees here this year, and we house uh, over 700 of them. Every, every year, every decade, we, we continue to, to build more dormitory-like housing. And uh, this coming year, we're going to build, uh, make more housing available than ever before uh, because it's, getting, it's more expensive now to live in a ski town than ever. Um, but um, it, it, just dormitory housing isn't going to solve the, the, the problem because everybody, uh, dormitory housing is perfect for a person coming out for a season or two. But uh, for someone that wants to make their life here, like, like I have and a lot of other people have, uh, we've got to make sure that wages are right and that uh, there are... Uh, uh, other tools to make it uh, make it make a ski make ski town living as accessible. There's been a couple dynamics that have really changed mountain towns, and one of those is the arrival of short-term rentals like Airbnb. The other is the much talked about COVID era relocation of white-collar workers to office towns. How have those issues impacted Big Sky, and how have you adapted to help your employees out during that time? Well, uh, building housing is, is one of those adaptations, wages, uh, making sure we're adjusting wages. That's one of those adaptations. Uh, going forward, uh, uh, making sure that there are really robust transportation systems available 
to to get people here. You know, uh, another thing to uh, we we've seen the change in demographics of how a lot of people are doing remote work, going from cities to living in in resort towns. Well, there are a lot of people that live in resort towns that could live somewhere else and work remote as well. I, I'm I'm thinking about making ski town living life. Uh, uh, more accessible, right? Uh, Rules and governance in communities uh, where density rules could be relaxed. So you could put uh, more smallable, affordable homes uh, on on smaller footprints. Uh, Community rules that would allow and incentivize renting uh, extra rooms that are unused in a house or or putting uh, apartments on houses. There are, there are a lot of things that aren't being done uh, quite as well as they could be now. Yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things that has a lot of solutions. I think the solutions are, are sometimes fairly obvious. What, what is harder is, the, is figuring out the human puzzle of it, right? Which is how do you get everyone to agree on things? And, and you have a pretty good example there happening of that, the big sky with the flat iron complex, which would create quite a bit of housing right at the base of the lifts, but it, uh, it, you know, people worry about traffic and water and a lot of other things. So just looking at that project as one example, what does it take to get things built and just keep moving ahead? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think all mountain towns, all resort towns share similar constraints of water and and sewer systems and parking and transportation. But what's unique about this point in time is how rapid this growth is, this exodus of urban areas and this influx in in beautiful places to live. And it's happened so fast. And it takes a long time to plan roads and highways and bridges. And it takes so much capital, community capital. So uh, so because there are so many more people living in resort towns right now, uh, there are other people who are starting to say we need to slow down and, and think about it. And some of them are saying we want to stop altogether. Others are saying we need to slow down and think and get it right. Um, but that flat, the flat iron development, it's way early phase. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go or when, but that is a good example of the conundrum that ski towns face. There's a lot of under, undeveloped uh, real estate there and, uh, what's the best way for the developers to, to actualize their, their profit motive and for the community to actualize its needs to be a good community. All right. Well, good stuff, Taylor. I wish you the best of luck with that. It sounds like you have a little bit easier time building up the mountain itself than the parts around it, but I, I guess that's, that's part of the complexity of life. So I, I wish you the best of luck with it. And, uh, you know, I'm really bummed out that I missed my trip out there this year, Taylor, but I'm looking forward to trying again next year and keeping myself in one piece long enough to get me and my family out there and hopefully meet you in person and take some turns on all this great terrain we've been talking about. Well, remember, we're either going to meet here or at Cloudmont. Your call. 
hmm, well, I, I think given, given a week's ski vacation, I'm going to go ahead and go with Big Sky. And, and we can have Cloud Mountain as a reach goal, which, uh, which actually is probably a bigger bragging point than Big Sky because how many people have actually skied at Cloud Mountain? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Something you can wear on, we can wear it on our lapels proudly. Stuart, thanks for, for checking in on us in Big Sky. It's great talking. That's Taylor Middleton, President and Chief Operating Officer of Big Sky, Montana. How cool is that? Dude rolls out of Alabama, not a skier, and wanders into some mountain backwater called Big Sky to chill with his buddies. Four decades later, and he has helped transform it into one of the best ski resorts we have, and he's been running the joint for a long, long time. Just incredible. That was a lot of fun, Taylor. Now, start working on Kircher, Get him to add Cloudmont to the Boyne portfolio. I want to see you guys fix that bad boy up with some snowmaking and a real nice chairlift. Thank you all so much for listening. We've got some good ones ahead. Next week, an absolute legend, Arapahoe Basin Chief Operating Officer, Alan Hentroff. After that, back to Boyne. An interview with Summit Esnaquami General Manager Guy Lawrence. Then we will hear from what might be New Hampshire's most underrated ski area, Ragged Mountain General Manager Eric Barnes, followed by an appearance from a very good friend of the storm who will be here for his third time, Indie Pass founder Doug Fish. Remember, if you're new here, the podcast is just part of the storm. Visit stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter to be part of the whole thing. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.